All right. Uh, tonight we'll go back to the what was an impromptu hermeneutics lesson on a Wednesday night. Then it turned into a second one, and now it's a third one because we still need to finish it. So um, I'm going to record this holding the iPad. Uh, the reason why is that's how the first one was recorded. So I want all the ones a part of that group to sound the same instead of uh, dramatically changing it. And because the notes that I'm using for it are on this iPad. So um, that's, that's the reason we're going to do this. Um, we are calling this, um, I think we referred to this as Grasping God's Word Part 1, Grasping God's Word Part 2. And so now we'll do part three. Remember we, uh, the way this started, we talked about interpretation kind of as a journey. And we talked about kind of the, the steps of the journey or the interpretive journey. And remember what step one was? Reading. Do what? Oh, oh, grasp the text in their town. What did the text mean to the original audience? Then step two. Measure the width of the river to cross. What are the differences between biblical audiences and us? Step three. Cross the theological bridge. Cross the theological bridge, which means what is the theological principle in the text? Everybody remember that? Mm -hmm. Okay. If you don't, I, there's no way I can go back and all the way and review part one, or then I'll end up preaching all of part one. All right. Uh, step four. Grasp the text in our town. How should individual Christians today apply the theological principles in their lives? And remember, for some weird reason, instead of just pl placing the, the point where it should have been, they place it after and they say, note that between steps three and four, interpreting the Old Testament is an additional step. And what was that additional step? Cross into the New Testament. Does New Testament teaching modify or qualify this principle? And if so, how? I remember we spent, uh, what, six weeks talking about all the different ways of interpreting and understanding how a New Testament writer may use an Old Testament passage. All right. Then, so they talk about principles. So then we talked about the criteria for the principles, right? And what were those criteria? Number one? Principles should be reflected in the text. Number two. Principles should be time, timeless and not tied to a specific situation. Number three. The principles should not be culturally bound. Now, I can't go back over all of these because it would end up, I mean, I mean, these are two parts. They're, they're then posted. So, uh, next. The principles should correspond to teaching of the rest of Scripture. The principles should correspond to the teaching of the rest of Scripture. Next. All right, yeah, the principles should be relevant to both the biblical and the contemporary audience. Okay, so that kind of gives us the steps. That gives us how to deal with the principles. Then we started talking about how to read sentences, paragraphs, paragraphs and, discourses. and discourses. All right, and we looked at the following things. Number one, when uh, how to read a sentence or a paragraph or a discourse, look for repetition, repetition of words. Look for words and phrases that repeat. Number two. Contrast. Look for ideas, individuals, and items contrasted with each other. Number three. Comparisons. comparisons. Look for ideas, individuals, and or items compared with each other. And hopefully everyone, if reading the Bible, you can de determine the difference between a contrast and a comparison. Hopefully you would be able to identify that. I hope. Okay. All right. But we don't have time to go back through that. Next. Lists. List. Whenever the text mentions more than two items, identify it as a list. list. Next. 
cause and effect. Look for cause and effect relationships. Next, figures of speech. Identify expressions that convey an image using words in a sense other than their normal literal sense. Next, conjunctions. Notice items that join units like and, but, for. Note what they are connecting. Next, verbs, right? Note active, passive, past, and present, all right? Um, in Colossians 3, there's a, an, an issue with a, uh, the tense of, uh, I think, a verb right there at the beginning of Colossians 3.3 3, uh, that we talked about a little bit. I think it's in the, the, the Greek aorist tense. All right, so knowing uh, the tense of Greek verbs are important too, especially if you're going to look up a Greek word, right? Okay, you may look up the tense of the English word, but you need to know if the English word is conveying the right tense that is found for the Greek word, right? T um, no, I don't think Blue Letter Bible gives you the tense. No, maybe it does. I can't remember. I'd have to look. So you got to know how to look at that. Next, Pronouns. Identify the antecedent for each pronoun. We have a lot. We had a long discussion about how good you can find the antecedent. Remember, sometimes major debates and arguments will happen because they'll be like. Usually, it's Stacy and Sarah who get who have the discussion. Well, the antecedent is this, which changes the whole meaning of the verse, and everybody else will be arguing or something else. And and I'm like, well, we got to figure out the antecedent and. If you don't do that, if you can't find the antecedent, that would be a good time for you not to argue. <laughs> okay, that's just where you should just stop. Okay, and again, none of this, and I want to make this very clear, this is all stuff you should know how to do when it comes to basic reading. Again, I don't know what level, what grade do they start learning these things? elementary school so adults when reading the bible who don't do these things it's some kind of it's kind of embarrassing all right because many adults will be making arguments about scripture literally ignoring principles taught in elementary school on how to read okay that's they think but you can't argue about a um a, a god's word because it's in written form you have to know how to read you have to know how to read right and if you don't know how to read, then you can't really have a formed opinion on what it says. All right, next. Questions and answers. Note if the text is built on a question and answer format. If that is, you have to identify the what? Well, you got, yeah, you got to identify the speaker, but the obvious thing, you got to identify the question and then the answer, okay? Because sometimes people, well, I don't know what people, I, I mean, I, so many arguments I've had with people with scripture, sometimes you're literally just like, I don't know what you're reading and how you're reading because it's not, it's, but, and usually, and sadly, it's usually this kind of thing that creates the, de the debate and the struggle. And it's, it's like, it shouldn't be like, if Christians are going to be divided, we shouldn't be divided over elementary reading principles. <laughs> okay. All right. Next. Dialogue. dialogue. Note if the text includes dialogue. Identify who is speaking and to whom. When does this become a major issue? Can you give me some books where this becomes a major issue? Okay. Job. Very important. You always Because so many people just run into Job and grab something. Like, whoa, 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 whoa. If this is one of Job's friends giving one of their speeches, are you going to pull something out of that and quote it as if it's a, a principle for all times and all people? Like, no, I, I wouldn't do that. Or even when Job is speaking, are you going to just grab what he's saying and say, see, 
you got to be very careful with that. When else does it become an issue? I think someone said prophets. Isaiah? Oh, man, that's always like, wait, who's talking? Wait, what's going on? Okay, wait, is he talking to them? Is he talking to what? what, what who? Yeah, all, all, dialogue is important. Next. Means. means. Notice a sentence indicates that something was done by means of someone, thing, and answers how. Usually you can assert the phrase by means of into the sentence. Does everybody understand that one? Yeah, okay. Now, did that, is that where we stopped? No. Okay, wow, okay. Purpose uh, result statements. These are more specific types of means, often telling why. Purpose and results are similar and sometimes indistinguishable. And a purpose statement you usually can assert and order that and a result clause so that. All right? Everybody got that? Yes. And then next, general, general or specific. specific. Find general statements followed by specific examples or applications. Also find specific statements that are summarized by a general one. All right? Everybody got that? Okay. That's where we stopped? All right. Now we'll see how far we can get. All right? <laughs> Oh boy, I just see, oh man, I forgot this one was coming up and I forgot the little booklet. I, I did a whole recording on it, so it's on the app somewhere, but okay, we'll get to this one in a minute. All right, here we go. Everybody ready? Next, conditional clauses. Conditional clauses. Conditional clauses. Everybody can tell me what a conditional clause is. All right. A clause can present the condition by which some action or consequence will result. Often such statements use an if-then framework, although in English then is often left out. If, conditional clause, if you do this, then this will occur. You hear me do that all the time in teaching, right? If I'm reading through a text and if it says, wait a minute, it seems to indicate that if I do this, then this will happen. And then I always stop and go, okay, if that is true, then it should be always true. And if it's okay, well, wait a minute, that doesn't seem to make sense. So then I have to go back and try to figure out are we reading it correctly and are we sure? Does that make sense? If anyone is in Christ, he's in Behold. Okay. Yeah, all old things have passed away and all things have become new. Now, wait a minute. Okay, the, the, it's, there's a condition kind of there, correct? Anyone who's, yeah, anyone's in Christ. Okay, however, what it's saying should happen, there's lots of misinterpretation about that, right? Because that should imply that everyone who's, who's a Christian, all old things are passed away, behold, all things have become new. And clearly, that's not always the case. So we had to go back, and remember, we, re, we reinterpreted that verse, which created much controversy. It still does to this day when people hear it online. Um, but we challenged it and said, well, wait, I think what's being, that's the way they were perceived, not necessarily the way that they now became. And that changed the way. And we did that based off the text in which it was found. Found You've got to do that. But what most Christians do, oh, look. 
conditional cost. I get all of that. You're like, well, and then when, when life doesn't d- begin to prove that they do, they become disillusioned or believe Christianity is not true. That's Christianity's fault for letting that happen. And it's a, the fault because many people don't obviously know how to read. All right, next. Actions, roles of God. Actions, roles of God. Identify actions or roles that the text ascribes to God. Actions or roles of God. Identify actions or roles that the text ascribes to God. That seems pretty straightforward, right? Where can it get kind of confusing or messy? What do you think? Roles. Roles, yeah. Actions and roles uh, of God. Identify actions or roles that the text ascribes to God. Okay. Uh, well, that, okay, well, I guess I could be kind of there. All right, I think sometimes in the Old Testament when it's describing different things that's happening, especially sometimes in the prophets, you're trying to figure out, okay, wait, okay. I, I may see God in the text, but then I'm like, okay, which ro- what role is he playing in this situation? What role is he not playing in this situation? Who's doing what? And sometimes in the Old Testament, it can get a little confusing. You've got to kind of figure, figure it out. I think sometimes... Um, um, the uh, the role that God may play in in the situation. I, I, here's what I think. I think here's probably the main thing to take from it. Sometimes we infer action and roles that God is playing in a text when maybe He's not there. Well, there I think we try to remove God from the situation instead of placing God in it. Right. Yeah. I think we, if the text seems to imply that something negative about God. We sometimes try to uh, then remove his identity or role from it. If it's a positive, then we try to place God's identity and role in it. What we have to do is let the text identify, well, we have to see what the text says. If the text identifies God's action or role and the situation, then guess who gets stuck with it? God. You don't get him out. You don't, you're, not, you're not the judge to come along and go, no, 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 no. God needs protection, and I'm here to protect him. That's not your job. Your job is to stick with what the text says about God, and sometimes it puts you in situations like, well, wait a minute. God's role in this is he's the one who set the whole thing up. That's what I do with Genesis, do I not? Right? Because I've said so many times, any logical person reading Genesis is like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Well, if God knew this, and if God knew that, and God's the one who did this, and God, God's going to get the blame, and we're like, no, 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 God didn't have anything to do with it. And, well, you, 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 you can't do that. All right, does that make sense? Action, roles of God. Identify actions or roles that the text describes to God. Next, actions, roles of people. Identify actions or roles that the text describes to people or encourage people to do or be. Actions, roles of people. Identify actions or roles that the text ascribes to people or encourages people to do or be. Actions, roles of people. Identify actions or roles that the text ascribes to people or encourage people to do or be. 
Everybody got that? Pretty straightforward here. Pretty straightforward. Shouldn't be difficult. Now, again, here's the th here. Let me make this very clear, okay? Because kind of a practical thing here. You can write all of these things down, right? Writing them down is wonderful, but they're of no value if they don't show up when you do what? Well, you got first. You got to use them. You got to actually study. But when you start reading the Bible, if these things are not being come coming through, then that's a problem. Or what's even worse, when you ignore these and then argue about the meaning of a text. If you haven't, if you haven't read a text enough to be able to identify these things, you can't argue about it. You you just can't. And it's. I wish there could be some rule in American Christianity to to just stop to stop it. But you know. You know, today I was having some discussion. There was found the Founders Ministries released this uh, trailer for a documentary they're making, and everyone today on the whole Christian world had complete utter meltdown. And everyone's mad about the trailer, and it calls into question some religiously, and everybody's losing their minds. Um, so um, I was discussing this with a bunch of uh, friends today, and I and they were like, "Well, what's your take on the trailer?" I said, "Well, my take on the trailer is Christianity went to garbage in October the 31st, 1517. That's when everything went to garbage." And they're like, "Wait, what?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Because at that point." It, everyone became their own authority and they became the own authority without any, without feeling the need to know how to do what? Do what we're talking about. Okay. Like there, there's some, look, listen, you know, you're, you're, do you know what determines your ability to do what we're talking about? It comes from reading a lot. <laughs> right? Because the more you read, the more you have to do this, right? Like this is not just a Bible thing. Like you've got to do it. When, now, if you read the Bible all the time, right? And you apply basic reading technique, then you should be okay. But the more you read, the more you do this constantly. Right? The more books you rack up in a year, the, be the better you get at this because you're constantly reading. Oh, okay, wait, what book? And the more complicated the book is, the more you have to do this. But you have Christians who don't have the reading skill, but they think they have the interpretive skill. The interpretive skill comes from your reading skill. And if you can't interpret what you read, then you can't interpret the Bible. Does that make sense? So it, it just I just wish there was a way to stop it. But man, once Luther broke that door down, Everyone's a Bible expert, everyone's a theologian, and everyone thinks that they have, you know, a degree in hermeneutics. I mean, in fact, actually in the modern church, what does a degree in hermeneutics even mean? Does a degree in hermeneutics give you any authority? I mean, everyone in here knows it doesn't give you any authority. So it's kind of, it's kind of a bad place that we're in. All right, next, emotional terms. Does the passage use terms with emotional energy? All right, emotional terms. Does the passage use terms with emotional energy? Now, here's the thing. I think there would be massive disagreement on if, we, if everyone in here could identify words that uh, are emotional terms. Because we could think, you may be thinking an emotional term is something that expresses emotion, right? And God is love. God is love. God hates. Those are emotional words to her. But, but there's 
Are there more that you're... Yes. They don't identify those kind of terms. They identify these kinds of terms. Are you ready? Father, son. Okay. And why would, why would they do that? Because a father-son carries an emotional weight. We, 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 uh, we have an emotion, we think of father. We have emotion, we think of son. Like relationship terms, or they call them kinship words, those are terms that carry an emotional weight. Now, you could have a word like pleading. Pleading is an emotional term, right? Because that's more than just asking. That's a pleading. There's an emotion connected to it. Identify the emotion in the text. Identify what, how, what terms could carry an emotional weight of some kind. All right? Does that make sense? Yes? No? Right. Because why, why do you need to identify emotional terms? Okay, right. And emotional terms trigger an emotional, it's supposed to trigger an emotional response inside the reader. Some people, I, I don't know how some people read. I don't know what some people do, but um, it's supposed to. So then you have to ensure that, wait a minute, this text hits me emotionally, right? Now, if it hits me emotionally, which can, can, then can do what? Lead me to an emotional interpretation instead of a text-based interpretation. Yeah, yeah, do, yeah, Joseph and his brothers. Be careful that because I was getting all right. Yeah, Joseph and his brothers can do it. Or even when you read, for Jacob I have loved, there's, there's language in there that immediately triggers. Well, wait, 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 wait. God, no, no, God, God didn't just love one and hate the other. He loved one and hate the other based off what they did. And then you read the text and it says, no, before they did anything. Well, he knew what the text the text makes it implies that it was God's choosing, way but not based off their action. And we're like, well, and because we don't like the emotion that stirs up, then what do we start trying to do with the text? We try to change the meaning to make it more, you know, accepting, accepting to our emotion. You cannot do that. So I, I, I wouldn't even thinking of it from that way, but that is a good point. Emotional terms. Um, you have to be aware of the emotion you are feeling from the terms. I was thinking it from a different perspective. Um, I was thinking emotion terms from this perspective um, because, um, because I think this is important. If, if the writer is trying to convey an emotion, you need to identify the emotion in which the writer is trying to convey, right? Because now you're, just, you're not just reading it in a very one-dimensional way. You're not only getting facts, you're realizing that author is trying to convey an emotion because sometimes they're, they're trying to convey anger and we read it as, you know, sometimes people believe, you know, if a, if a pastor gets angry about an issue, everybody's like, well, I don't know what's his issue. But if you read the Bible, there's lots of anger, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yes. Sometimes there seems to be sympathy or pity. Sometimes there seems to be love. Sometimes there seems to be harsh sarcasm, mm -hmm. right? 
picking up the emotion gives you a better understanding of what's going on in the text. If you, if you, eliminate, the, if you eliminate the emotion from it, you're not getting a right understanding of the text. All right, everybody got that? Next, tone of the passage. All right, what is the overall tone of the passage? Is it happy? Is it sad? Is it encouraging? Et cetera, et cetera. Identify the tone of the passage. Oh, man. Okay, I don't want to get into this next one because I did not bring... I could bring you an example of it. But Okay, but I'm going to... I'm going to uh, if you didn't listen to the teaching on it, you definitely need to listen to the teaching on it. All right, the next thing they identify is what's called a chiasm, spelled C-H-I-A-S-M, a chiasm. You need to determine if a passage has any chiastic arrangements. Does the passage have any chiastic arrangements? Um, this, the, my, the whole discussion about chiasms started when um, we received something in the mail from some ministry. I think it was in California. Um, Bobby and Diane gave it to me. And as soon as I opened it up, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. What are they doing here? And so as soon as I got home, I sat down with it and I was like, this whole thing is built on what a chi chiasm is. This whole, this whole booklet it's built on chiasm. They're going through different texts in Scripture going, this is, this is chiastic in nature, and they're in chiasm. So I, I, if I go back and reteach everything on chiasms, then that's going to be the I don't want to reteach it. I, I spent, I don't know, I think an hour on the recording talking about them uh, and giving you all kinds of examples of what a chiasm is. I gave you definitions. I gave you biblical examples. I even challenged some of the biblical examples. I gave you simple chiasms, complex chiasms. But here's what's sad. Most Christians don't even know that they exist. <laughs> and just, and you just kind of go, I don't understand, you know? Uh, but, but again, if you don't even know that they exist, and then you argue about a passage, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, sometimes you just have to shake your head and go, boy, here we go. Uh, because, but, you know, you need to know them. So I, 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 I want to go back through them, but... You know, I didn't bring I didn't bring everything because I already taught it. I already taught it, so I'm, I don't want to teach it again. You need to you need to know what they are, and you need to know how to identify one. All right? Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Okay. Next. Now I know there'll be people who hear this go, wait, where's your teaching on chiasms? Well, it's on the VBC 66 app, so go get the app. There you go. Right. Best I can do for you, or email me, and I'll send it to you. All right. Here we go. Interchange. The next thing is to look for is interchange. Does the, pass, does the passage shift back and forth between two scenes or characters? Does the passage shift back and forth between two scenes or characters? Now, does the passage shift back, uh, uh, back and forth between two scenes or characters? All right, this is a, this is a common thing in novels. 
very common thing. I'm reading a, a book right now called Pandemic, and um, the book the book starts off with these, you know, possible Ebola breakout in Africa. You get chapter one and two, basically, okay, like a typical medical, okay, got it, got it. And all of a sudden, in chapter three, they shift to a scene in a hotel room. This guy wakes up. His, he's been all beat up. He doesn't know who he is or where he is, and he finds a dead body in the hotel room. And you're like, wait, what's, what just happened here? We, here. And so then the, the book takes these parallels, so it'll shift back to the pandemic problem, and it shifts back to this guy who doesn't know who he is. Now he's got everyone, out, everyone in Germany out to find him, and then he gets kidnapped by we don't know who, and he gets taken we don't know where, and you're like, wait, who is this guy? And why do we keep going back to this guy? And so it keeps going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. That happens. Now, the Bible, it's not that dramatic, right? It's not that dramatic. But whenever there's passages shifting back and forth between scenes or characters, you have to figure that out. Well, probably what would be some good books were, uh, in the Bible where you have major shifts between scenes and characters? Okay. okay. Uh, well, prophets. First, first and second kings. Okay. There's a good example. Some t- do what? Is it like with a prophet where he's talking in the present tense and then you get the jump to the possible future? Yeah, or so, like, wait, wait. Yeah, because sometimes you're like, well, wait. That never really happened. That, hey, how? When is that going to happen? Why, how does that apply to them? Like, what's going, you know, what's going, kind of like uh, in the prophecy about the, uh, uh, that a virgin will conceive and bear a, a child? And you're like, wait. Did a virgin bear, because the, the person he said, you remember the, the king didn't want, you know, I'm no, I don't want a sign. He's like, well, I'm going to give you a sign. But that king wouldn't be alive when that sign. So what, what happened, right? That can be the kind of thing that to, to take place. And that can create lots of interpretive challenges and problems. They can. Now, we always try to come up with a simple answer. You know, ah, it just jumped, problem solved. But, you know, that's just because we think everything has a simple answer when in many cases they don't. But if you read lots of novels, you're used to this constant shifting back and forth between scenes or characters. Happens all the times in novels. If you don't read all the time and then you get to the Bible and it does it, then you're kind of like, wait, what's who, what? Yes, that is true. Now that's a good point. Uh, It almost always happens in a novel in the middle of a chapter change. That's true. Um, But yeah, in the Bible... Right. That they had like five or more characters Ch- going on. And every chapter you go to, so by the time you get <clears throat> back to the original, you're like, how much time is novel? Yeah, yeah now, in, now in a novel, I love that because what I love to see is uh, can they keep these four or five different changes and then bring them together at the end? That's the brilliance of a good, that's, yeah. that's the sign of a good author. If they can bring, bring them back together. And the Bible, it's not that easy because you're right. It can just change and you're like, wait, what just happened? Like, I thought we were talking about this. <laughs> I thought we were talking about them in captivity in Babylonia. Cap- well, what's going on? And then we got, we got to figure, we got to a- ask those questions. All right. So, um, I, interchange, uh, like I said, in the Bible, it's much more difficult and it's not as easy. Next, connections to other passages and episodes. How does the passage connect to the ones that preceded and the ones that follow it? How does the passage connect to the one that precedes it and the one that follows it? 
Connections to other passages and episodes. How does the passage connect to the one that precedes it and the one that follows it? Yeah, that's another word for it, yeah. Um, hermeneutics books constantly change because uh, they're, they're constantly finding a different way to explain it to get people to catch on to it. I, that, that using the idea of context, I guess, no longer works. <laughs> so, so they're like, we gotta call, we got to call it someone. Let's call it connections to other passages and episodes. In fact, when you read what they're doing here, they're using terms that much more would be used to apply how to read a book. And they're trying to bring them over to the Bible in hopes that people read books. And so they'll be, right? They're kind of using the Augustinian idea because remember Augustine's idea, like you learn how to do this by reading other books. Then you bring it to the Bible because the implication was you would be a reader, right? But people who aren't readers, then all of a sudden become Christians and then they all of a sudden they're an expert in all of these things and it doesn't work that way. All right, so connections to other paragraphs and episodes. Next, shifts in the story or pivots. Shifts in the story or pivots. Is the passage being used as a key to understanding a dramatic shift in the story? Shifts in the story or pivots. Is the passage being used as a key to understanding a dramatic shift in the story? All right. Now, this would probably happen more along in narrative form, but you basically, you get to a passage and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, this is setting up a, 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 a dramatic shift in the story. It, it's, it's a key to understanding a dramatic shift in the story. You're finding this passage and you're going, okay, this shets, sets up the shift or the pivot in the narrative. Does that make, make sense? This, this, this breaks that down and this gives you uh, the key and how to figure it out. All right? So it's, I think that's pretty important all right shifts in the story of pivots is the passage being used as a key to understanding a dramatic shift in the story all right next now we're getting now this we're going to have a big well, and i think it's funny that they put uh, a shifts in the story of pivot they put it last because now we have a shift and a pivot to something else all right here we go now, now this next part focuses on this what do you bring to the text So that was how to read. Now, what do you bring to the text? All right, now here's where I'm going to have all kinds of problems, okay? All right, so now we're going to be, uh, we're going to have me basically argue about everything that's ever said in a hermeneutics textbook. Okay, here we go, all right? I have major differences in, in my approach to hermeneutics than many books here. All right. What do we bring to the text? They have four things listed here. When I start reading what these four things are, I'm not going to explain it, but I hope you can catch on to what they're doing here. All right. You ready? So we just spent a long time looking at what? How to read. All right. Now we're going to look at what you bring to the text. You read the text. 
But they're implying that you bring something to the text. You know how I feel about that. What are my feelings about that? Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. That is. That is. How, I don't believe you should bring anything to the text. Um, I believe that's where problems begin. Okay. Because whatever I bring to the text is going to cloud it in some way, shape, or form. Now, every time I say this, people get people. Well, you know, email me and argue with me. But I, I don't even care anymore. At this point in my Christianity, you can argue all day. I, I don't care. You you bring whatever you want to the text, and I see how well that's worked out since October thirty first, fifteen seventeen. It's worked out wonderful, hasn't it? Yeah. Right? It's worked out great. Okay. No one can literally agree on any. And every time I say we can't agree on everything, people are like, no, we can agree. Can we? Let's open the Bible and start reading. Now we can agree if we set the Bible down. And I just named some doctrinal points, right? Okay. Now, oh, like a creed. Okay. As long as I, I don't quote a scripture, but once I open a scripture, chaos ensues. And we know that. I mean, how many times can I uh, give you examples from commentaries where there's 13 commentaries and 37 different opinions, right? All right. So here's what they want you to bring to the text. Number one, the Bible is the word of God. Although God worked through people to produce it, it is none, nonetheless inspired by the Holy Spirit and is God's word to us. The Bible is the word of God. That's a simple way of putting it. So what are you bringing to the text with that idea? You're bringing a presupposition. It's a presupposition. You presuppose that it is the... Word of God, and therefore you read it as? Well, I don't, I don't, I, I, I know Christians love to say that that means they're going to read it as authoritative, but I don't believe that at all. Um, you believe it's authoritative when you like it, and you believe it's authoritative when it condemns someone else. Okay, when it comes against you, you find ways to do what? It doesn't really say that. I mean, I know it says that, and what, what's always the famous words I always hear, I know it says that, but, so I don't even believe that when we, God really wouldn't want me to do, God wouldn't, God wants me to turn my cheek, God wants me not to resist evil, <laughs> that can't be true, okay, oh, but, 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 when he wants homosexuals condemned, that has to be true. See how it works? So I don't even believe that when we claim, well, yes, I believe the Bible's the word of God that makes it authoritative. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's, that's, that's church talk. Okay. But now people will say, so do you not approach the scripture as the word of God? Here's, here's the way I try to approach it. I try to approach the Bible first and foremost this way. It is a text, a historic text in written form, right? My job is to read it and understand it. If I come at it, Right? Because here's what happens. If you come at it with, and, and, and I know this is a little game of semantics here, but please hear me out. If you come, because here's the thing. If I, when I come to a text and I raise questions about the text, it sometimes makes y'all nervous and your first reaction is to do what? To argue back with me, right? Your, your immediate reaction is, wait, wait, he's calling into question that text. And you'll fight me, but you're fighting me not because you've studied the text, but because your presupposition, it's the word of God. He, there, there can't be a problem with it. He can't.
can't question it. He can't call it into question. It's the word of God. You're, a lot, you're so consumed with your presupposition that you're not even willing to hear my questions about the text. Right? Like, wait, if God is all-knowing and he created Satan, knowing what Satan would do, and I start raising those kinds of questions, people are like, but, 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 I'm not, you see what I'm I'm just saying that you can believe it's the word of God. I believe it's the word of God. Obviously, I wouldn't be a Christian. But that does, I don't allow that to get in the way of me asking the same kinds of questions to the text that a person who does, doesn't believe it's the word of God would ask. Does that make sense? You can have the presupposition, but the presupposition can't get it in your way. How, how, if I read Genesis, right? Okay, in the beginning, God created everything. And now, that, Right? I get to Genesis 3. Well, what's this thing crawling into the garden, tempting them? Where did it come from? Well, the obvious question, or the obvious answer would have to be God. Why? Now, see, I ask this question, people go, but, but I think God, you, no, no, no. Don't you're you're speaking presupposition. I'm not saying that you can't believe it's the word of God, but you can't allow that to so cloud you that you can't even uh, un, like when because this is what happened when atheists ask those questions. We're just like, well, they're just unbelievers and they're ungodly, and you know they just can't understand. Or maybe they know how to read. Maybe it's Christians who can't read. Oh, see now if I say that, Christians get mad at me. Okay, but you see, but what are they reading the Bible with? No presupposition, or at least, okay, no presupposition that it's the word of God. They have a different presupposition, which is, it's not the word of God, and that can so cloud their reading of the text. Right, so, but I'm just saying, you have to read it, you can believe it's the word of God, just don't let your first words out of your mouth be more from your presupposition and not from the text. Does that, can, does that make sense? Does that offer kind of a balance to what I'm saying? Because so many times here, when I ask some of those questions, the first thing that comes out of y'all's mouth is clearly presupposition and not text. Because in many cases, it's obvious you haven't even studied the text, right? But then you want to argue the text. Well, that's your presupposition coming through. Does that make sense? All right. Number two, the Bible is trustworthy and true. The Bible is trustworthy and true. These are things you bring to the text. Now, again, make it very clear. Do I believe the Bible is trustworthy and true? Yes. But what do I not want to do? Allow that presupposition to be so in the way that I'm not willing to do what? Well, wait a minute. That contradicts that. See, if I say that contradicts that, what will most Christians immediately say? There's no contradiction. But if it looks like a contradiction or meets the, the definition of a contradiction based on any reading of any text, guess what I'm going to call it? I'm going to call it a contradiction and try to figure out an answer, right? I'm not just going to simply say, Bible's trustworthy and true, can't contradict itself. You see, what, you see what I'm saying? I'm not denying that it's not trustworthy and true, but I'm not going to allow the presupposition to get in the way of me asking that question. And if I'm willing to ask that question, guess what? Other people are already asking those questions. 
Next, God has entered into human history. Thus, the supernatural, miracles, etc. does occur. God has entered into human history. Thus, the supernatural, miracles, etc. does occur. That's a presupposition you bring to the text, right? If the text describes a supernatural act, what do you accept? That it's true. That it's true. You just accept that it's true. Now, charismatics, well, they, they have been so confronted in many cases, they want to prove to the atheist, I don't need to say miracles occurred in Exodus. I'll show you that miracles occur every single day because we had this person healed in this and then they, and they end up faking miracles and lying about miracles. You don't want to do that. But that's them trying to defend their presupposition. But you have a presupposition, right? When other people go, uh, when was the last time a snake talked? Never seen one talk. When was the last time you saw a donkey talk? Anybody? Okay. People mock that. You don't mock it because you just assume. True. Now, if it's in another religious book, you do what? Mock it. <laughs> because that's your presupposition coming through. All I'm trying to say is when it's questioned, when it's questioned, do what? Try to figure out how to answer it, but just don't speak presupposition. Try to speak what? Text. Now, if the text says that, then we have to accept that's what the text says. Agreed? All right, okay. Next, and this is, this is kind of going along with number two. The Bible is not contradictory. It is unified, yet diverse. Nevertheless, God is bigger than we are, and he is not always easy to comprehend. <laughs> That's Christian speak. What does that mean? There's not contradictions. It's just what? We just don't understand it. All right, we'll try to get through this next part. All right, that's what you bring to the text. Would everyone agree you bring that every, oh, to the Bible every time you read it, those four things? Mm -hmm. Yes? Yes. Okay, and what do I have a tendency to do? Mm -hmm. I constantly challenge many cases, those, those presets, and which always gets people very nervous and upset. Mm -hmm. I want to make sure you understand. When I question it, I'm not denying the presupposition. I'm just not trying to allow the presupposition to do what? Blind me from the text. If the text has a problem, I'm going to see the problem. And when I say, I hate that, or I don't like that, people, you, always, you can almost just feel like a chill come in the air. And you're like, how can he say that? I can say it because I'm a reader and I read something I don't like. I'm not denying it's from God. Right? If it's good enough for Luther to say, love God, I, sometimes I hate him, I'm good. it's good enough for me to say the same thing when it comes to passages in the Bible. Agreed? Okay. So I just want to make sure, you understand, make sure there's no misunderstanding. I'm not, saying that, I'm not saying you cannot have these presuppositions. I'm saying you need to be aware that when you read the text that you can so, those presuppositions can become so the filter that you can't see any questions or challenges from the text and you think it all makes sense. You think it all fits together perfectly, and you don't know how these atheists have such a difficult time with it. I can see why they have a difficult time with it. When I'm reading a book, and I'm like, wait a minute. He made everything in six days? Really? 
And there's a talking snake in chapter three. Really? Most logical people are going to start having some problems. And if you can't see that, then, you, then, then you're, not, you're not being fair because you know that if I gave you any other book and you read some of those things, you would have a problem with it. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so you're good. Yeah, animals talking jungle, jungle books. So you're good. All right. All right. This is what they go on to say here. Presuppositions don't change each time we study a passage. I won't argue that your presuppositions don't change each time we study a passage. I won't argue that because you only you know your presuppositions. Here's what I will say. Your presuppositions don't change, but what should you do? Don't allow your presuppositions to get in the way of the text. When you study the Bible, what should be your primary, primary concern? What does the text say? Don't allow your presupposition to just... And that's that the go-to, oh, it's, I don't get it. I'm okay because it's God's word, so it's all right. Oh, that kind of stuff drives me insane. All right? The next, so that's that. And I don't have a problem with that, but that's what they say. Next, pre-understanding. They call it pre-understanding. Pre-understanding refers to all our preconceived notions and understandings that we bring to the text that have been formulated both consciously and subconsciously before we actually study the text in detail. No, 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 no. They're calling these, uh, because, yeah. They're calling it pre-understanding. They're drawing a distinction here. Here's the reason why. Right, we'll go through these again. This refers to all our preconceived notions and understandings that we bring to the text that have been formulated both consciously and subconsciously before we actually study the text in detail, I would hope we know consciously what our presuppositions are. These are pre-understandings that, could, that have been formulated both consciously and subconsciously before we actually study the text in detail. You have pre-understanding that consciously you've got subconsciously you've got, you don't even know you have it. How, how can you determine what your pre-understanding uh, could be? How, how can you determine what your pre-understanding can be? What would be a simple test in determining what your pre-understanding is? Okay. Best, best way to do it is, here's the thing. Let's say, I, I, I could just throw out a verse if I threw out, you know, I, if I just, you know, the burden of Tyre, uh, and I start reading uh, Isaiah chapter 22, verse 1, right? If I threw that one down, now you may not even know the text enough to know you know what's going on there, but okay, you probably know Tyre at least at some, some point. But if I threw out a verse, here's what you need to do. The first thing you do is you take a piece of paper and you write down your initial, just what you read it once and you just write write it down what you what you think about the passage. You're not trying to figure you're just writing down the first thing that comes to your mind. You're not even giving it a second thought. You just write down the very first thing that comes to your mind about the passage. That will be filled with presupposition and pre-understanding. That will be filled with it. Right? Now what you what do you have to do with that piece of paper? You can set it to the side. Now you study the text. 
right? Without any of, without any of that. Then you go back and compare it to your presupposition, your pre-understanding, and guess what you'll find if you study the text in depth? You, well, I think 90% of the time what you should probably find is, whoa, that's not the same as I thought it was. And that happens a lot of times here. I'll read a text and I'll say, okay, what do y'all think? And y'all just start throwing out ideas and then I'll start to go, okay. And usually I'll be like, and then I'll start going against it. And once I start going against it, what do I almost always get? Someone will probably try to say, no, no. And that's your pre-understanding and your presupposition. Let's try to study the text and see if it holds true. If it holds true, wonderful. But you don't know if it's going to hold true until you say, you go, well, I've studied it five times. What if your five times before was wrong? That's why I always say, don't use what? Don't use old notes. Don't use old notes. Don't use old notes. Because you have to constantly be trying to stay. But you have, and it's just frightening to think you have pre-understanding that's even subconscious. I don't like the fact that subconsciously I could have some understanding to a text that I don't even know that it came, where it came from. That frightens me to death. It means I don't even have control of my own thinking. But our subconscious can have you know, profound impact on us, and we have to think that through. All right? Mm -hmm. This is like judging a book by its cover? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. But you're judging the text by its cover. Like judging a book by its cover, that's one thing. You see the cover and you're like, eh, you know. I mean, that, that's, that's what I keep thinking. Yeah. You're looking at a cover and going, ah. Uh, I don't want to read that. Or that was too violent. Or, or whatever the case may be, right. You're already drawing a conclusion about the content of the book. Here, you have a pre- pre-understanding of a text based off who knows what, right? Maybe something you heard in church, maybe you heard in a Christian radio, you don't know what, and you just read it into it. And then when someone comes along and begins to push against it, you fight, but you're not fighting off a textual study, you're fighting off presupposition and pre-understanding. And, and, and that's whenever, whenever I hear, whenever as a pastor, if someone starts arguing with me about the text, my first thought is always, I wonder how much time they spent studying it. That's my first thought. And if I, if I am convinced that they didn't, that's when I get mad. Because now that we're not, I can't, we're not having an argument about the text. We're arguing over a presupposition and a pre-understanding versus a study of the text. There's no, there's no way to have a meaningful conversation. And that's why I always will say, until you've studied it, let's not argue it, right? But people would rather argue than study but then there's no point. Does that make sense? And, that, and again, this would fix a lot of the divisions within Christianity. All right. They go on to say, our culture produces interpretational reflex. Our culture produces interpretational reflex. I'll read these two and stop. All right. Here we go. We tend to fill in all the gaps and ambiguities in the biblical text with explanations from our culture. We tend to fill in all of the gaps and ambiguities in the biblical text with explanations from our culture. 
You're confronted with an ambiguity or a gap in a text, and then what do you use to fill it in? What we know. That's the worst thing you can do. Because <laughs> what the explanation can't be derived from our culture. It has to be derived from their culture in some way, shape, or form. That's where we have to start. We tend to fill in all the gaps and ambiguities in the biblical text with explanations from our culture. We don't even realize when we're doing that, do we? Right? We don't even realize. Again, if I start talking about guns, immediately y'all will fill in the gap of the text from the Constitution of the United States of America. That has nothing to do with the Bible. <laughs> okay? Nothing. It has no authority over the Bible, has no bearing on the Bible. And when you read it that way, you can't do that. If you read text in the Bible dealing with Im immigrants and how Israel was to treat the immigrant, we'll read that and we'll, 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 I don't like, we'll read it in light of our current situation with immigrants. You can't do that. Do you think the Bible cares that we, we have a president who wants to build a wall on our southern border? They don't care. It didn't exist. Don't read that into it. Go, oh, 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 here's proof. Here's proof. Okay. No. That's, that's just, I don't even know. Look, no. Your country, your politics isn't the thing to fill in the gap in the ambiguity. That's not the way. You're like, oh, that sounds too socialist. Oh, wait, they had rules to take care of immigrants? That can't be so. That can't be the way it should be. Why didn't they build a wall around their field? Right? Well, wait, 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 wait. You got to let the text speak, right? Now, if you don't like it, that's not, that's your problem. Okay, that's your problem. You can't make it say what you want it to say. You can't make it say, well, this should be pro-free speech, pro-Second Amendment, pro-anti-immigration. You can't read that into the text. They don't even know what you're talking about. I mean, that's what happens. I'll start talking about guns. We'll be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Well, remember Jesus told them to, to sell what they had and buy a sword? That's the same thing. And you're like, uh, really? Is that because they only ended up having a couple and there was more people than there were swords. So obviously it wasn't making a mandate that everyone own a weapon. And when you read about the sword, it seemed to be more of a tool. Hmm, I don't know if this was a weapon used for self-defense. Why do I even have to make that argument? To try to make it take an argument from that to make it a, an argument for pro-gun is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen Christians do. You're not reading the Bible. What are you trying to read into it? Your belief in the Second Amendment. If you believe in the Second Amendment, don't try to force that onto Jesus. <laughs> what he's telling you, resist, don't resist. What did he do when they came and got him? Peter, cut off as many ears as you can. They're like, whoa, whoa, that's different. And what, what did Peter later on say? He's the example we're supposed to follow when we face, oh, well, that doesn't count. Because what are you trying to fill in? There's some amb ambiguity there. You don't like it, so you try to fill it in with your political view and your culture. You cannot do that. You cannot do that. And every time I, I question that, Christians get mad at me. I'm like, that's, like that's, a, that's not even a Trevor problem. You've got a hermeneutic problem. The you don't have the right to read American culture into text. 
American culture, guess what, did not exist. All right? Jesus was not a member of the Republican Party. Okay, y'all looking at me like it's not true. He was not a member of the Republican Party, and he did not have a pocket constitution in his robe. Okay, I know that's a shock to some people, okay? But he didn't, right? And his political involvement was very weird, wasn't it? Render unto Caesar? What is Caesar's? The Bible seems to submit to your leaders. Just live out your Christian life. It didn't ever call for a political revolution, did it? That's kind of a shock. I guess there's some pastors in, in, in our culture today need to hear that. Next, our cultural background performs a parameter of limiting possibilities for a text even before we grapple with the intended meaning. Read that again. Our cultural background performs a parameter of, of limiting possibilities for a text even before we grapple with the intended meaning. I'll use it in terms all, all of us will know here in Texas. Your cultural background builds a wall around the text. Your cultural background performs a parameter of limiting possibilities for a text even before we grapple with the intended meaning. What is that saying? You have a, everyone in this room has a cultural background, right? Yes? I'm, I believe I'm probably the only anti-Second Amendment person here. I'm opposed to this. I believe everyone here is pro-Second Amendment. I agree, agreed? I'm probably the only one who's not, right? Okay. Your cultural background performs a parameter of limiting possibilities. If I go to the text where Jesus seems to be speaking in a pacifistic way, which I say would limit the use of a weapon, or may even prohibit the use of a weapon, you come back with me and argue. You're arguing because your cultural background has built a wall around the text, and you limit any possibility of interpreting that goes against your pro-Second Amendment view. That's not Christianity. That's not Bible. That's not hermeneutics. That is something other. And whenever I try to point that out, people get mad at me. No, don't get mad at me. What, what is supposed to be the authority? But if you build a wall around the scripture and you're saying, keep out, you cannot infringe on my cultural background. My, my cultural background is going to protect the text from being interpreted in a way that goes against your cultural background. It performs a parameter of limiting possibilities for the text even before we grapple with the intended meaning. What do you have to figure out when it comes to the text? What's the intended meaning? Period. And the, guess what the intended meaning doesn't care about? Your cultural background. What does the meaning of the text not care about? Your cultural background. I'm much more of a pacifist 
very much opposed to most war, almost all wars, I've, I believe, especially probably, I'd have to go back before Vietnam, I believe pretty much every war, Vietnam and following, violate the uh, just war policy. So I'm opposed to pretty much all of them and believe they're all unjust and wrong, according to the Augustinian view. Okay, well, guess what the a Bible doesn't care about? My view. Because sometimes the Bible describes wars that I don't believe were very just. Go and kill everyone, man, woman, boy, girl. Whoa, 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 what is that nonsense? Right? Agreed? Okay. If it doesn't care about mine, guess what? It doesn't care about yours. And you have to accept that fact. So whenever I say something, because I, I hear it all the time, like anytime, there's a, anytime I bring up the gun, there's usually someone who comes to me after, what, but... But in this situation, but in this situation, but what about this? Well, but what about this? Well, what? And I'm always like, you're, argue, you're, you're asking me to answer the text, right? You take it up with the text. Your issue is not with, I didn't write it. I didn't write it, right? Jesus wrote it, right? And if you, if you feel that you can place your cultural, your cultural mandate on the text, then what I'm going to challenge you on is let's not talk about guns. What do we need to talk about? Your poor hermeneutics. <laughs> That's what we need to talk. It's no longer about guns, is it? So what can you not do? You can't build a wall around the text. Your cultural background can't come along and go, here we go. Okay, and, I'm not, and I'm over here preaching, and I'm like, here's a possible interpretation of this text. And you're like, Sorry. Sorry, you don't have the proper authority to come into my country, okay? It's my Bible, it's my country, and I'm uh, allowing you as an illegal immigrant who cannot come into my country, all right? Why? Because you're bringing in an interpretation that goes against my cultural background. And that's why I said I always get bothered that a Christianity in Seattle, Washington, why does it look so different than the Christianity in West Texas? It shouldn't. We're all using the same book. I, I'm often baffled by, you'll look at the statistics. Who's more likely to support war? Christians. What? Who's more likely to support the ownership of guns? And you're like, what? I'm so confused. I'm so confused. The same thing happened in our country, right? We won't allow... allow African-Americans to come into our worship service. Wait, wait, what? We won't allow, um, if an African-American and a non-African-American are dating, we won't allow them to attend Bob Jones University. What? What? Uh, what is going on? You know, we'll support slavery. Wait, wait, what? Cultural background becomes what? Builds a parameter of limiting possibilities. You limit the possibilities. What should be the only thing that limits the possibilities when you're trying to interpret a text? What should be the only thing that limits the possibilities of how to interpret a text? If you answer this, we can go home. Okay, well, okay, that's the text itself is the only thing that limits your possibility. If the text limits the possibility, then you can't, that's what, we, remember we were trying to do with Colossians 3 on Sunday night, right? Okay, what does dead here mean, right? And I'm like, here's our three possibilities. Well, those were only three possibilities for dead, so guess what? There couldn't be number four, right? All right, Colossians 3, we had dead life, 
Okay, what life is it referring to? We had three possibilities again, right? Okay, and then, and then hid. Well, we didn't get to hid, but okay, that's, what did we do? We tried to let the text, we had to find the Bible to define its terms. That limited what we could do. We could not go beyond it. And then we have to figure out which is the best. What did, what did not come into play? Hopefully our cultural background did not come into play. The only thing that should limit it is the text itself. Our basic hermeneutical rules, you know, how to read, definitions of words. They're, they're, those are the things. Not cultural background. And you've got to be careful. And you'll know when it's your cultural background that starts building the wall. You've got to, yeah, as Reagan said, you know, Gorbachev, tear down this wall, right? Okay, right. We got to tear down that wall. There's no wall. The only wall that's, uh, that's uh, the text itself builds the wall. And it's like, and if someone's like offering an interpretation, you're like, what? Where, where are you reading that? Right, where are you? Like, like uh, when we were having the argument about spiritual Israel, okay, and we're reading in Romans, right? You know, and then you're, and and then people argue like that's spiritual Israel. Like uh, the beginning of the text, Paul is speaking of himself being a part of Israel. But like, what what are you talking? And then, and then Israel's being set aside. Well, which Israel was like? Wait, it's clearly talking national Israel, and all of a sudden, magically, it jumped to spiritual Israel. What what? You're making it say something that the text itself is not giving you the ability to say. That should limit your hermeneutical possibility, right? So it's like sometimes we'll limit it, and then sometimes we think anything goes, and we're not following any basic rules. That is an important, important one to talk about. Our cultural, our culture produces interpretational reflex. Our culture produces interpretational reflex. Everybody got that? You have to be able to identify that. You, everyone, it, it's affected everyone in this room. It's affected me. It's affected you. It just looks different, right? Your cultural, inf, uh, your culture, culture produces inter, interpretational reflex that's different than mine, right? The difference is we have to admit it and acknowledge it. And when it's just your culture, you just got to. You don't try to justify it with the Bible. I've said so many times. There's lot. There's lots of things that I may do in a specific situation. And I will admit that that's what I may do, but I'm not going to use the Bible to justify it when I don't believe the Bible would justify it. Right? I've often said, if I owned a gun and someone broke, uh, broke into my house and tried to harm someone, I would probably unload every bullet I had into the human being, uh, reload the gun and keep unloading until the gun would not fire anymore. And then probably kick the person 12 times. Okay? The only thing is I cannot say what? I don't believe biblically that that's justified because the text doesn't seem to justify that. And there's no, and any argument you try to justify, you're, the one time someone used violence, Jesus rebuked the person. And he healed the person that was injured. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And you try to make 37 objections to, well, where's the text that says Jesus called for violence? No, I don't have it. I have Jesus being a pacifist, right? That's why the early church were... Right, okay. So, now, that doesn't mean I, I'm not a human, but it just means I can't do what? Justify. Can't justify. I can acknowledge it. I just can't justify. Now, that doesn't mean I don't believe there's ambiguity in the text. I believe there's some, some, some difficulties there, and there's some ways I could kind of work around it, but I have to do so through the text. I can't just build a wall around it and say, well, my culture doesn't allow that interpretation. The Bible allows the interpretation. I have to allow the interpretation and then struggle with it. Does that make sense? 
I'm trying to be as balanced as I can. I know people will only hear what they want to hear and get upset and miss the whole point, but that's okay. All right, we'll stop. Lord God, we come before you this evening. A lengthy, lengthy look at hermeneutics, but some very, very important principles. I pray that everyone will benefit from this lengthy look and uh, most importantly, just remember them every time they read and every time they hear a sermon. I ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,